welcome to season six of the Not Your Mama's Autism podcast, a podcast about neurodivergence told both through the eyes of our family, the Ollies, and through the lens of the greater global neurodivergent community. I'm Lola Dada Ollie. We hope you enjoy this episode we have lined up for you. So, with that in mind, let's get started. Janelle Johnson, licensed family marriage therapist, PhD candidate, mother, wife, all of the things. Thank you for joining the Not Your Mama's Autism podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I was saying earlier, I'm going to put this little disclaimer in. My sweet face, my eight-year-old, is here with me. I wasn't expecting him to be home during this recording. So if you see a delightful eight-year-old boy pop into this screen, you know, forgive us and smile because he's delightful. (laughs) But just a disclaimer. Yes, it's not a problem at all. We would, we are very, very much looking forward to a cameo of cuteness, if you will. So it's okay. <laughs> it's okay if happens. So, like I said, thank you for joining us today. I mean, you wear many, many, many hats. You're also, you know, you live this very rich life. You're the founder of Bridges Family Life Center. So, yes. tell us a little bit about that before we go into the personal. So if your elevator pitch, what is Bridges Family Life Center? Bridges Family Life Center is a group practice. We are a group of marriage and family therapists. We specialize in systemic therapy and approaches to human connection. And so we help leaders master their most difficult people problems at home and at work. We do that through therapy. We do family therapy, couple therapy, and individual therapy. Um, But we also provide counseling, I mean, a consulting nationwide. So we work with organizations who have challenges with intercultural connection, work culture, and, and specific challenges related to social justice issues and DEI. So we work with companies who find themselves wanting to advance their DEI strategy, but they don't really know how to put those pieces in place. That's a little bit about the different arms of bridges, uh, but we're we're doing some cool work here in North Carolina and across the country. We're a team of um, seven therapists, um, so I've got ten employees total, and um, I'm I'm enjoying the work. Excellent, excellent. So you are clearly mission driven. On top of all that you're doing, you're also a self advocate as well. So you are autistic yourself. And Sweetface is also autistic, so I'd love to get into that. How would you describe little Janelle growing up? Oh, man. Little Janelle. hmm. Little Janelle was very quiet, had a very rich imagination and inner world that I loved to be in and preferred to be in, honestly. I also was quite gullible. So I was a follower. Definitely. I I wanted to do what other people were doing because I had trouble fitting in. I thought, you know, I should, you know, mimic behavior and um, got myself in a little bit of trouble doing that sometimes as a a young kid. Um, As I got a little bit older, I felt more secure in just being 
myself. I had um, my family is likely all neurodivergent. Um, some of us do have diagnoses. Some of us do not. It, I'm pretty sure all of us are neurodivergent, but we're all undiagnosed, you know, throughout childhood, of course. We had this way of being different and my parents were very comfortable with us being different. We just, they just wanted us to be successful. So they really harped leadership development for us and giving us access to opportunities. So that's where the masking came in. Not so much trying to be like other people to appease, uh, you know, to appease someone, but just what do I need to do in order to be successful? Yeah. So that's when I started really putting on a lot more masks. I have a different perspective on masking than most folks, I think, but uh, maybe we can get into that later. I would love to hear it. I would love to hear it. <laughs> and let's and let's do some level setting because there's some people that are very, very new to the podcast. So if you don't mind defining what masking generally is and then sure. go into how you're, you've redefined it. Sure. So masking in 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 uh, neurodivergent or autistic concept is one's one's attempts to appear neurotypical. Neurotypical being you're not someone with um, under the neurodivergent umbrella. So you try to behave as if your brain is not wired differently. And so that can look like using phrases that you hear other people use and you don't quite understand why they use them, but you try to use them anyway. Practicing. Um, masking comes with a lot of practicing, going over what you're going to say and how you're going to say it, even stand to the point of standing in the mirror and seeing how your face looks. There's there's a lot to it. For, for some of us, there's a lot to it. We put a lot of effort into masking um, and, and not even effort. Sometimes it's just it's second nature because you're an adult and you've been doing it for so long that you really don't even know how to not mask. So I, I liken it to code switching for Black folks. It's, it's the same concept, but transitioning from neurodivergent to neurotypical. So how, how would you define it as, you said you view it a little bit differently. So how would you view it? So generally, masking is seen as problematic. There's lots of research proving that it is problematic with regards to how it impacts our mental health and even our physical health. I, I experienced some of that. So it's the research is there and it's true. Definitely true. I think one of the perspectives that I have that you might not hear very often from a self-advocate or researcher or educator therapist that's a little bit different is there's something to be said about the value of knowing how to speak neurotypical language it's kind of like if you decide that you're going to move to France and you know that France if you know anything about France you know that it's a country that really values the language and they look down on folks who don't at least try to attempt to learn the language right absolutely so, if you know you're going to be moving to France and you know this about the culture of where you're going to move and where you're going to live, and you don't make any effort to learn that language where you're going to be, then you're already, you already know that you're going to be shooting yourself in the foot when you arrive. Like that there's, mm. you're going to be facing some challenges that maybe you didn't have to if you had the ability to try to learn this language. Now, to be fair, not everyone has the ability to learn 
to learn French, for instance, or in this case, to learn how to math, to learn how to be neurotypical. So it's not to say that, you know, we shouldn't be doing all the efforts that we are doing to create a world where you don't have to mask. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have to mask. Point blank. And we live in a world where our culture, our autistic culture, um, our, our dis- disability culture is struggling economically mm. vastly. And one of the reasons that is, is because for autistic people specifically, we don't know how to mask or we don't know how to mask in a way that um, helps us get where we need to get to achieve the goals that we want to achieve, whether that's educational, um, business or what have you. So I have found a lot of value in learning how to mask in a way that was not detrimental to my humanity. My parents didn't say, you know, why can't you be like so and so? You know, it was it was very much like, what do you need to do in order to maximize your intelligence. I'm a really smart person. So they wanted me to like maximize that. What do you need to do to be able to do that? So it is a means to an end. It is not a, you know, I I have to do this because I'm trying to be like somebody else. I never had that conversation a lot here in our house, thinking about how we're going to raise sweet face. Like, how are we going to frame this? He's already thinking about masking, which we didn't really realize until a couple of weeks ago. But like, you know, how 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 do you frame that, especially when you're a black autistic family? How do Absolutely. you frame that? Absolutely. I've never looked at it through the lens of it almost being like um a competency, like, oh, I'm multilingual. Oh, I can speak neurotypical, I can speak neurodivergent. I never looked at it like that. That's a that's an interesting way to look at it. And it's for Black autistic families, for autistic families of color, I'm sorry, I suspect brown families are in this similar category, but us being able to speak that lingo is the difference between life and death sometimes. It's the difference between, you know, a certain career path or not. So yes, I never look at it through the lens of almost like a core competency, but that's why you have the professional expertise that you do. So thank you for teaching me as always. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm I'm hoping to do some research and, and write some papers on it because it's something I've been thinking about a lot. There's not there's not work on it in the field. It's something that I mean, as a thought leader, these are the things that I'm like, you know, trying to push the envelope on in intersectionality and disability mm-hmm. culture. And that's one of the things like what well, you know, you know. There's something to be said about Black folks who know how to code switch. I know how to code switch and it works well for me. Me code switching because I feel less than is different than me code switching because I understand that I want to be able to communicate effectively with this person who may not communicate with me if I choose not to code switch. And how's that going to help me pursue whatever goal I have for Black disabled families? So... Convert someone or to convert someone from not knowing anything about this to an ally later on. There yep. first has to be a conduit. And I, I I hadn't looked at masking as a conduit before. Yes. But that's the way that I experience it, especially now. Um I've been I've been out as autistic um low-key for about five or six years, but really out out probably for the last two or three years. It happens time and time again. People want to talk to you because 
you've done all these things and all that and you're autistic like that the 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 cognitive dissonance of that for people is intriguing and they're like oh like we want to meet this person we want this person to come do this and talk here and and all these kinds of things and it gives me opportunities to advocate for myself and for all of us I, so I see it as a skill it's just mm-hmm. a, um, yeah. communication in general it's a set of skills I'm not supposed to be a relationship expert but I am because it's a set of skills. So that's the way I look at it. Yeah. And communicating regardless of whether or not it's in the neurodivergent context or not is learning your audience and targeting the message to the audience. So masking can be viewed as both obviously a very challenging event, a set of events that some members of the neurodivergent community have to go through, but it could also be seen in this light. So in my opinion, I I haven't really heard anybody talking about it in this way, but I'm trying to add, add another layer to it. I think, I think we don't hear about it in this, in this regard because, because there's not enough discussion around the intersectional layers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you have black and brown successful um, neurodivergent people, the way that we approach things, you're going to hear this conversation more as opposed to someone who's white and autistic or someone who's black or brown, but not autistic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Your layers have layers, which I suspected they would. So I, I listened to an interview of you recently, and it mentioned that Family members told you that you had speech differences. I don't know if you remember such, but could you, to provide some context, if you do remember some of those speech differences, do you mind sharing? I used to say words backwards, or I would put the wrong syllable at the beginning. My mom, um, uh, my mom says that she couldn't get me to say the word pocketbook right for nothing like I would say everything but that I would say pocketbook rocketbook anything but pocketbook but there's lots of examples of that of just words where I just I just didn't get it this uh the story of when I first said my first words is like epic in my family because I didn't I didn't talk until I was a little after three and my first words were a full sentence mommy open the door I'm hungry Wow. Just yeah. went straight, just skipped all the <laughs> And she said my dad, her and my dad were like so excited because I kept I kept saying the same sentence over and over. I was in my room. It was early in the morning. And she said they like ran to my room and ran to the door, like, is that her? Is she actually talking? And they just listened to me repeating this over and over. And then my mom was like, wait, she said she's hungry. We need to go, we need to go in there and get her and like get her fed. I did have some some speech challenges for a while. Um, also, writing, I, I struggled with writing. I still am not a, a my writing is still not awesome. It's not super legible, but you know those fine motor skills were a challenge. I just happened to be blessed with a mom who was an educator, an English teacher with a minor in special education. Oh, nice! One of the reasons that I communicate so effectively is because I was raised by this this person who valued reading and writing to the nth degree uh, and made sure that I could do it well. I would walk around the house and say words, say sentences, and she'd be like, you know, 
that's a, that's redundant or that's a, you know, these words were being tossed around when I was in third and fourth grade. So it's another reason why I'm actually pretty decent at communicating is because of her. Yeah. I I was going to say when you said she was an educator, but then when you added special education, I said, okay, because there are even some teachers who try, but they don't, Unfortunately, you know, we live in a world where success is supposed to look a certain way and education is supposed to look a certain way. So the fact that your mom was able to see beyond that, to see, because brilliance comes in many packages and sometimes it just takes us a different way to open up that package. So I, I love, I love these stories about your mom. Your mom is, your mom is the real MVP as the kids say. The real MVP. People don't even know. Like she, um, she was, I remember her being in the newspaper. I had to have been maybe eight, somewhere eight or nine years old. My mom taught the first inclusive secondary classroom in Kansas We were living in Kansas at the time and her and another teacher built a program for a ninth grade English class. So there were special education students in there and general education students in there. And this was the first inclusive class inclusive high school classroom in the state. And because she had this minor in special education, she managed the the um, the work or the adaptations that were needed for the work for the disabled students in the class. And yeah, that's my mom. I, I don't MVP believe For sure. I'm, a lot of the work that I'm doing now, I'm like, it's more of the same. Like I, I had no idea that I was going to pursue a, a doctorate in education, but like, yeah, my mom was a, an educational equity champion. I'm loving having the opportunity to do some of that work now in my research. Yeah. So you picking up that baton and continuing to move forward. That's awesome. So along these lines, you know, talking about the baton and running and continuing in in our era, right, in our generation moving forward, it's a good place to ask about Sweetface. And eventually he will pick up that baton. So tell us a little bit about your philosophy in raising Sweetface. Well, um, it's a work in progress. I will say that my husband and I spent a lot of time talking about what we wanted, uh, what we wanted Sweetface to value. And we value leadership. Um, we just do. We want, um, we want Sweetface to be a leader in whatever he does. And that looks like being willing to walk to the beat of your own drum and not really care what other people think about it to the point of making sure that you're pursuing, continuing to pursue putting good into the world. But outside of that, I think we really focus on specifically for Sweetface, we we focus on celebration and joy. We didn't want to build a, a life where our challenges were gonna be the 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 center of the story. Not because you know you wanna like pretend that you're you're not a disabled family, but more so because that's that's not the story. It's like you know, I, I have a whole body, but I'm not going to spend all of my time talking about my arm just because my arm hurts or my arm causes me problems doesn't mean I don't have a whole rest of my body that does things and experiences things. Right. So that's kind of our approach. Like, yes, we take care of this this part of our lives that is challenging and 
we love our lives. We love to have fun. We laugh, we play, we joke, we celebrate milestones. We, we live in joy. Um, there's, there's nothing like autistic joy. Mm. Nothing like it. And then black joy, black autistic joy. I love it. I love our ability to tap into wonder and amazement and and enjoy being in that space. And we seek it. We seek it out. We we're the seekers of that, of that in ways that I don't think other human beings are. And so that's something that we really also center and celebrate in our household. You know, just the basic things like we're, we're a Christian family. So we, we operate on Christian values, um, biblical values. So we want to instill all of that into him and at the same time, give him space to ask questions and make his own choices about what he believes. So, yeah, I guess I could sum it up by like leadership, freedom of thought, joy, morality. And it sounds like what you're also saying is autism and or disability is merely one aspect of the fullness of who we are, which a lot of the narratives, I think you are very kind in saying you don't want to focus on that. But a lot of the narratives before what I call this more modern era of advocacy has almost solely focused on just that. And I get it because in order to get the services that some of us are enjoying in the current generation, you had to be very real with some of the trauma associated. But it's a great point you're making that it's just one attribute of us. And just openly living our lives sometimes feels like a radical act, because if you look at how the system is set up, we're not supposed to succeed. I'm not supposed to be on the line as an attorney advocate talking to an, an absolute super uber uber successful self-advocate, highly educated. If you see the systems that we had to break through to get to this place, um, it wasn't an easy road, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean we have to have so much of our focus on all of the negatives. So I love how you just beautifully put that all together. So with with that in mind, what made you decide to build and found Family Life Center? Bridges is Bridges FLC is something I've carried around with me since I was 14. I had this experience in my family happen where um, we, uh, a family friend, we we adopted. So I have two adoptive sisters as well. And one of their siblings was facing some challenges with a family that we knew. We knew the other family that had their sibling. And that mother called my mom one day and they talked for hours and hours and Mom got off the phone with her and she had this super concerned look on her face. She was just shaking her head. And I'm like, what is going on? And so I asked her what was wrong. And she said, you know, she told me about what was going on with their with their son, their adoptive son. And she said they went to to a, a psychologist and a therapist. And both of them said that there was really nothing that they could do. And. What. What was challenging in my mind at the time, like I kept wrapping, I kept running the story in my head over and over, you know, like we do. Sometimes we just can't let something go. And 
the issue that they were facing was challenging, yes. But what I couldn't pinpoint was, did the psychologist not help them because they felt like they didn't want to manage 14-year-old boy expressing, having a different gender expression? He was wearing his siblings and his mother's clothes, underclothes. Does, do they do they not want to manage the difference in gender expression? Do they not want to work with this black family in white Kansas? Do they like what is it? Like what's going on that they're not going to at least support this family, regardless of whether you know they have concerns with gender identity or they support gender identity and so they feel like the family should just deal with it and move on. But like, what about the family? How, how are they supposed to just like go home and just do what? And so that's what got me interested in psychology is like, how, how are, how is this field supporting families who are different? And so I took my first psychology class when I was 15 and it was at UC Davis. I took it online my first term paper was on was comparison comparing culture shock to sibling order change. Who is thinking about that? It, well, I was 16 when I wrote the paper. Me, me. That so. This is, a, this is I've been studying families and relationships and family psychology since yeah, I was 15, for quite a while. over 20 years. For quite a while. For quite a while. Hmm. What do you love most about being a therapist? Oh gosh. It sounds like one is too hard. How about top three? Top three. Right, right. I'm I'm pausing because I'm thinking about all the things that I love about being a practice owner and on top of being a therapist. Like it's there's layers to it. I think if I would answer differently, you know, five to eight years ago as opposed to now, our practice is almost six years old. So one of the things I love about being a therapist is actually the anti-oppression work that happens in the room, if you know what you're doing. In fact, I was talking with someone on LinkedIn about this just yesterday. There are so many breakthroughs that can happen in therapy that can't happen in other contexts. And it's because this group of people, either this couple or this family or whatever, they have these familial bonds that can cut through a whole lot of other things. If if I'm if I'm I'm longing to be bonded to this person, but then there's this this deep seated, deep rooted racism sitting in me alongside of it. Am I going to choose the family bond or am I going to choose the, the racism? You know, yeah. so so it, it it opens up this this space where like really amazing things can happen mm-hmm. in anti work. So that's mm-hmm. probably my favorite thing about being a therapist, specifically a Black family therapist that works with all kinds of folks. I work with, our, our practice serves predominantly Black and Brown families, but it's like 60-40. And then, of course, a lot of families are not, you're not, everybody's not Black in the family. There's, in, there's lots of interracial families, of course. Oh. So that's really cool. Number two, I love helping people see home differently. Home is supposed to be freedom. If you can't have freedom in your home, what hope is like, how are you even functioning in this world? 
we have this uh, this uh, philosophy at Bridges that's built on home, H-O-M-E. It's, um, you know, healthy order, open communication, management of family life and education of followers or children, if you're talking about your household. Basically, it's like, how can you build this environment where it's centered on freedom and life and joy and peace and everything that people really want in their homes? Because the world is tough. It's Life is hard. This is the one place where you have the ability to shape it, to make it anything you want it to be. And it doesn't have to be subject to what your family taught you. It doesn't have to be subject to what the world says the rules are for gender. It doesn't have to be subject to anything except what you say. Mm, that's that's probably number two. And then number three is being a practice owner. I love creating a space where Black and Brown practitioners and, and, and white practitioners who are allied can practice safely and can practice without politics and experiencing racial um, oppression or, or, or any kind of oppression as a result of the place they work on top of the, the challenging work that they're doing with their clients. Like I love cultivating a space where people can learn and grow and receive mentorship and be, be safe. You talk about anti-oppression work through the lens of, you gave an example through the lens of racism. In your own personal and professional experience, what, as you've especially grown in this space, you said you're, you know, being a practice owner versus a therapist, what do people misunderstand most about autism in your view? I think the most difficult thing for people with regards to autism is managing what we call, we call them mental schemas in, in therapy. So a mental schema is like your, it's your definition of a thing. So if I ask you, what is a mother? You have like this mental checklist of like, this is what a mother is. And everyone has different mental schemas. So if I ask one person what mother is and I ask another person what mother is, I might get two totally different answers, right? So for autism, I think the biggest challenge is helping people deal with their mental scheme of what it is in their own mind. And for most people, people have a, a mental schema of, of what autism is based on what they've seen in media for however long. So it's only been within the last Man, I would even say like five years. I was going to say five um, years. <laughs> that we've begun to see any kind of variety around what autism is, and even just within the last two or three years. So, up until this point, there was just like this: this is what autism is, and this is what it means, and this is how it presents. So, I think that's the number one, the number one challenge is like helping people to, it, it's a, our mental schemas form our belief systems, like what we believe. It's hard to change belief, really hard. So when people believe that this is what it means to be autistic, and then you show up as something else, that's where you hear the, oh, I don't think you're autistic or no, you can't be autistic. That's why we hear it so much because people have these like deep seated like belief systems around like this is what it means or this is what it looks like to be autistic. 
Yeah. Well, while you obviously you've always been autistic, you grew up autistic with me. It, I grew up alongside an autistic baby brother. And I remember people saying, oh, you guys are black. He, he's not autistic. I'm like, what? Like, you don't live in our house. He's autistic. <laughs> so yeah, it, you're right. It's really only within the last five years and self-advocates like you. And I was talking to I I was taping a podcast just yesterday with an amazing mom advocate that actually went back to school, got a PhD in psychology. She has an amazing story as well. And she has an autistic son who's now 25. And she, we were talking about that very thing, how being black, some people literally thought that autism just didn't, <laughs> just yeah. didn't happen in our communities. Like we just, I don't know, we're just self-selected out of neurodivergence yeah. across the world. <laughs> yeah, like just... Um, and in fact, the whole reason that I'm doing this educational equity program is because of a conversation like that. I went I went to see my dean, um, my dean of my old college at NC State. I was an, I'm an alum of NC State as well as a returning person doing a Ph.D. And so I went to talk to the dean of my old college, which was for psychology. And we were talking about industrial organizational psychologies, which is what I thought I wanted to do. And somehow or another. We started talking about autism. I don't know how it came up, but I asked him, I said, what is your picture? Because he, you know, we were talking about it and I, you know, how some of us are. We start spouting facts because we can't like shut it down. And that's how I am. Um, so I started talking about how in North Carolina, the face of autism was actually a black boy. The, the research had come out. This was four years ago. The research had recently come out that in North Carolina, the uh, the rate of diagnosis was highest for black boys as opposed to everyone else. Now we know the CDC da- uh, CDC data that just came out a couple months ago. That's how it is everywhere. Like black and brown people are the ones who are being diagnosed more than everyone else for for eight year olds. So yeah, in North Carolina we had that data a couple of years ahead, and I asked him what his picture was, and he said, "You're right. Like I would have never." In my mind, an autistic person is a white boy. And he was, he's like an old white man telling Mm -hmm. this. And and that's everybody, I won't say everybody, the overwhelming majority of humans, that's the picture Mm -hmm. is is a a little white boy. And it's not an adult. It's not a black or brown person. It's not a woman. It's not a woman. (laughs) It's not a transgender person. Yeah. It's not a gay person. None of that. Yeah. It doesn't address intersectionality. And autistic folks are some of the most highly intersectional folks there are. There, We are more likely to be gay or trans. We are more or, or um, non-gender conforming. We are more likely to be. There are a significant number of black and brown folks who are autistic that had up until this point weren't getting diagnosed. But how could it not be the the general population in the world? We are the global majority, right? Black and brown people are the global majority. Yeah. So that means we, it has to be more autistic black and brown people than white people. Mm. <laughs> it's only logical. We're mm. 8% of the population. Mm. So, you know, it's just, anyway, I'm, I'm blabbering. I'm like, no, 
no, no. So along those lines about intersectionality, you obviously are sitting at various intersections yourself. And so along the lines of what people misunderstand about autism, why do you think, I'm going to assume it's a similar answer. Why do you think oftentimes women I talk to on the podcast, they're either late diagnosed, much later in life diagnosed, misdiagnosed with something that's not even close to autism. And I see that as a recurrence in women I come across. Do you think that's a similar reason because we're stuck on how autism has presented itself publicly in the past? Yes, that is part of it. Definitely. The other part is the way that the diagnosis, the, the, the diagnosis itself is written out as far as um, the, the symptoms that we are supposed to look for. The symptoms, the symptoms are written based on what we can see more so than the internal experience of the autistic person. And so if you are, we see the same thing happen in ADHDers, ADHD hyperactive, the, the, the hyperactive type, that's going to be diagnosed way more often. The inattentive type gets missed all the time because it's more of this kind of internal experience of what they're, what ADHDers are experiencing. So for autistic folks, the way the diagnosis, the way the symptomology is written out, you're looking for repetitive behavior. You're looking for challenges in social interactions. Like you're looking for what you can see. And there's not a lot of, it's kind of difficult to, to, it's kind of difficult to help people that are built with a medical model, psychiatrists write this stuff, right? People that are built with a medical model to help them understand that you know, we we need to be looking at what's happening in the internal world of this person. Women tend to experience a lot of things internally and they mask really well. Not everyone, but that's just the, the general, generally. And so when they show up in front of their, their psychologist or their therapist, they're what what they see isn't lining up with the symptoms that are there that we have to follow to say this is what this is what it is. So that's another huge piece is just even the way that the, the symptoms are written. It's interesting that even women, it's regardless of how your brain is wired, it's almost like there are societal pressures to internalize so much. Because even across the board, you see studies about women are less likely to be uh, diagnosed as going through a heart attack because it doesn't present the same way it presents in men. And that is a study of, I'm assuming, mostly neurotypical women. But the underlying premise is similar. Like we're all taught to internalize yeah. stress, trauma, pain, you know, sensory, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's fascinating and sad at the same time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then the diagnoses that are more prevalent in women, they don't get the, um, there's, the, there's the societal layers too. Like if you're wanting to study autoimmune disorders, for instance, which are more prevalent in women, you're, it's hard to get research dollars for that. It's hard and it's hard to get research dollars that are significant. And, and so you, you've got like in gynecology, we're still using gynecological methods that were created a hundred years ago in some instances, right? So it's just, 
there's there's a lot of layers there. Yeah. It's consistent, that's for sure. Consistent in the bad way. So I wanted to ask you, based on your research, lived experience, professional practice, what hopes do you have for the neurodivergent movement now and into the future? Oh, I have such high hopes. I have such high hopes. It's why I'm involved. It's why I I try my best to um, support different movement, new movements that are happening. There is this move. I really appreciate what what Judy Seeker started, the the creator of the the neurodiversity paradigm. I, I really appreciate what she started because what she started is an ability for us to have this um, political agenda, this social movement, right? Where globally, everyone can come under this umbrella that we can con- we can connect to a line and move forward the way that people talk about different facets, whether that's ADHD, autism, dyslexia, bipolar disorder, whatever it is we can move forward the way that we talk about these things. And it's shifted disability culture overall. My hope is that, and we're already seeing it, my hope is that, number one, neurodivergent folks are free to be ourselves in all contexts. Number two, I think my hope is that we experience better equity, equitable access to all it, all that is available to us in society. I highlight equity because equal is not equitable. It's not the same thing. So just like for Black and brown folks, disabled folks, we are actually the last to arrive on the train of civil rights. And people don't think about it for some reason, just as recently as, you know, the 80s, the 90s, in in 20, what, 2017, there was a capital crawl that, you know, blew up the news. Like, you don't, (laughs) you don't see folks having to fight for like basic, basic rights. They were, that fight was for Medicaid. Talk about basic rights just to live. There's not a lot of folks who are still having to do that. Even the Black community itself, we're, we're fighting for equity rightfully for a lot of other things, but, but we're leading the charge in, in a lot of these things where the disability community is still like, we're still struggling in ways that other oppressed communities are not. Yeah, I think equitable access where we get to catch up we get to, to to have the ability to catch up. Yeah, that's all I can think of right now. Got kind of off on a tangent, but I do have high hopes and I and not just hopes, but I strongly believe that it is going to happen, that we're going to continue to see these changes for the better for um, for neurodivergent people. I think neurodivergent folks have leadership knack that a lot of other people do not. And there are a lot of people in leadership positions who are neurodivergent and they're not out 
And I, mean, I wasn't out until a couple of years ago. So, and I've been a leader. So, you know, th- there are people who they're out here doing amazing things. And one of the reasons they're able to accomplish all that they do is because they're neurodivergent. And I think that uh, we're going to continue to see that shift and people recognizing the strengths that come with being neurodivergent and not just the challenges. Janelle, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For those that want to reach you inside North Carolina, outside of North Carolina, what's the best way to reach you? You can reach us on our website. That's bridgesflc.com. There's a button that says, let's connect. And you can reach us that way. Also, we have information about all of our services on there, therapy in North Carolina and training and consulting internationally. So you can reach us there to contact us about that. You can also reach us on social media at Bridges FLC for the business. And then for my, um, my personal or my business social media handles that's at the family fanatic the family fanatic that's where i am everywhere on um linkedin facebook insta i'm most active on social media on linkedin and on um, facebook so reach out to me connect as always thank you for listening if you like our content please share and subscribe If you're curious about how this podcast first came to be, check out season one of this podcast in its entirety on any major podcast platform. If you would like to follow us on social media, please check us out at Not Your Mama Coffee. As always, thank you for your support. Take care and be well. Not Your Mama's Autism Podcast is written and produced by my mom, Lila Dada Ali, and is occasionally produced by me, Fella Ali. My dad and sister also contribute sometimes. Big thanks to Anna Lee Ackerman for her audio and video editing support. Until next time, everyone, see you soon.